go. All right, well, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Napa. Obviously, things are a little different uh, this week and will continue to be so, I imagine, for at least a, a couple more weeks. And so for our, our viewing audience, those of you who are at home or wherever you may be, welcome. We are so glad that you are tuning in today. We love you guys and uh, miss you tremendously. It's hard not to to be together like we're used to being together, but um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that we still have <clears throat> these these ways of, of communicating to you and connecting week by week and still able to bring the word to you. Pastor Joe is able to lead us in worship corporately, though we are separate. But uh, praise God that we, we still have these opportunities before us. Um, we have a number of announcements today. This is, without a doubt, going to be a record breaker for the announcements. So if you'll just uh, bear with me, this is all very important in this, this season. So a number of things to cover here. Uh, first off, I wanted to mention that uh, we are in the process of building a, a new website. We have been for a little bit of time now. I'm not really sure uh, what the, the time what the time is going to look like on the finished product at, at this point, but our current website is still functional, and we have just created uh, a new info card. If you go to our website, you'll see it uh, as soon as you open it up, calvarynapa.org and you're going to be able to see everything that we, we would like for you to see in this season. So it's the Stay Connected page, and uh, there's going to be a message there for me that, that um, I gave last week, and then all the information that you're going to need to know in this season to just to kind of be uh, aware as things are changing and there are updates <clears throat> and things like that happening. So I'm asking every one of you, Calvary Napa, to go to our, our website, calvarynapa.org, and check that out. Check that out, please, so that you can be up to date. With that, we were in the process of trying to update our contact info list, which is really important, especially for times like this. And so we're currently working through updating that. And so if you've been here, for, um, if you're relatively new and you know that we don't have your contact info, then please go to our, our webpage and you can go to the I'm New card and... Uh, you can click on that, put your info in there, and then we will be able to get that um, with the rest of our info and we'll be able to contact you or communicate with you as well, keep you in the loop as things are changing, new things are happening, so on and so forth. But that is so very important, so please do. We want to update our contact info and have all of that as high and tight as we possibly can. Um, we are tuning up our social media platforms we want to be able to connect with you more regularly through Instagram and Facebook and, and things like that uh, in a time like this. It's very important, obviously, to be able to do that. And so we're trying to really step up our game there and be available to you and have more content out there for you guys. So with that, we have a new Instagram account, and that is calvary.napa. So if you go on Instagram, go to calvary.napa and then follow us. That that would be my my request. And you know, maybe you're not uh, comfortable with all this social media stuff. Maybe this is all like a foreign language to you. It is to me too. And so honestly, for the last several years, I've been fighting it, kicking and screaming. But I'm recognizing now more than ever, it is just the way that it is. So it's new to me. I'm trying to begin to get familiar with Facebook and all these kinds of things because I want to be available to you guys. I want to be able to speak into your lives during a time when we can't really be together as we're used to. So with that, please um, do what you can to get connected to Facebook and, and Instagram and uh, follow us so that we can be uh, connected, as I said. Um, we're working towards creating small groups, small groups for the church to gather. Again, if you go to the info, uh, that info page at our website, you're going to see all the information there. Everything that I'm talking to you about, it's all on that page. And it's pretty lengthy, so as you just scroll down it, you're going to see all of this info there, the details, how to get plugged in, how to get set up for these things, who are the people that you need to be in contact with to get plugged in. All of that is there. And so I, I, I want to direct you to that, but I just want to make you aware of it. And so Zoom has been a really popular uh, way in which people are connecting online and having gatherings and meetings, if you will. 
And I know that uh, we're going to be having a women's study gathering on Zoom, and our regeneration, our weekly regeneration meeting is also happening there. And there will be more meetings to come. As I understand, some of our life groups from our church are underway. They're going to be starting up, I think, this week. And so if you want to get plugged into that, if you want to be a part of an online group, then you'll go to that info page, and there will be a spot there where you can um, put your information in and figure out how to get plugged into that. So again, I want to direct you there. We would like for all of our congregation to be able to get plugged into this so that everybody can be part of a group during this time. And honestly, when this time passes, and I believe that it will, um, we want to stay connected in groups. So I think that this is a, a good time to uh, allow the situation, as it were, to cause us to connect in ways that perhaps we would not have before. And when we come out the other end of this, we're going to be so much stronger and closer and connected. And I'm excited about that. So I, that's just one way in which I see the Lord doing something pretty sweet in a time like this. And so I mentioned some of the groups already. One of them is the Women's Bible Study. That's going to be starting this week, and there will be two per week. So it's Monday night and Wednesday night. And I know that uh, Miss Debbie Walden will be leading one of them, and then my wife Jessica Rainey will be leading another. So you can go to calvarynapa.org, scroll down, find uh, where it talks about this, click on it, and you can go into the, the lessons for the women's study, download uh, them. And so you're to start by... Uh, watching the, the introduction and then download the first session. And um, if you have any questions on how to get plugged into this, you can contact my wife, Jessica Rainey, jessica at calvary.org. Jessica at calvary.org. And um, she will get you plugged in. Pastor Dan, was that right? Calvary.org? Huh? Calvarynapa.org, sorry. Jessica at calvarynapa.org. <clears throat> and uh, she will get you plugged into that. And... She has asked me to, to make a very strong plea for the ladies, all of you, because this is important. We need each other in this time, and they're working hard to get this out there for you so that you can be connected and still being fed and fellowshipping with the women. And so please, please, please take that seriously, connect, get plugged into that. And um, you know, if you've never been a part of something like this, I would encourage you, uh, now's the time. This is, this is a great opportunity for you to plug in and get to know some of the other sisters. And so it's a big deal, and that starts tomorrow night. So ladies, please do that. Again, you can go to calvarynapa.org to get the information for that. Also, our Regeneration Weekly Recovery Meeting, it is also um, doing the same thing. Again, all the information is at the website. You can contact Pastor Aaron, and he'll be able to plug you into that. For those of you who have physical needs, if there's some way that our church can serve you, uh, we need we want to know. We want to know uh, who who is in need and how we can help you. <clears throat> and you can get in touch with us by calling the church. If you just Google Calvary Chapel Napa and go to our, uh, it'll have all of this information: our physical address, our phone number. You can call the church. If you get the voicemail, it's important that you leave a voicemail because it transcribes it and sends it to us via email. And so we can get in touch with you that way. So call the church. If we don't answer, leave a voicemail. We'll get back to you. Or you can email the church, office at calvarynapa.org. Office at calvarynapa.org. <clears throat> and uh, we will respond to you as quickly as we can. We want to be here for you. We want to be available to you. We want to be able to serve you any way that we can uh, as the needs arise. And then lastly, uh, <clears throat> I've had a number of people ask about giving during this time. Um, how can they give? I know that a number of you still desire to give, but obviously with the church being closed, uh, it's, you're wondering how to do so. Well, you can go on our, on our website to calvarynapa.org and there's a, a place there that you can give. And some of you have been. I think some people have begun to give that way who haven't before. Or you can mail checks to the church. And so... Um, I've been really blessed and impressed to see how people have been continuing to give to the work of the Lord here, even in this time. And so I just want to say thank you. We love you guys. We feel your support and your generosity. And that's just amazing to me to see your love for God and your love for His church with a desire to continue to give and to support, even in uncertain times like these. <clears throat> All right. Well, that does it. I think that was 11 announcements. 
And so that's probably at least double, if not more, than double what uh, I think we've done before. So there you have it. Praise the Lord. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. As I said last week, I wanted to depart from Romans for a time. Um, I would love it if when we come back together in person, we can pick, pick up right where we left off. I think that, that would be my desire. So in the meantime, I thought, Lord, what would you have me to teach next? I began to pray about it and consider different options. And what I landed on was the upper room discourse. That is John chapters 13 through 17. I'll talk more about that as we get into it. But this has always been a very special passage for me. I love these chapters in the book of John. And so I'm very excited to share them with you over the next few weeks. And so I'm going to try to do a chapter-by-chapter approach here. We'll see how that goes. There's a lot in John, and these are very special chapters. But my goal for today is to take us through John chapter 13, and I have titled this message, No Greater Love. No greater love. And there truly is no greater love than the love of Jesus. And so with that, before we get into the Word, why don't we bow for a moment of prayer. Go before the Lord and ask His blessing. Father, we love You and we praise You, God, no matter what. Any time in our lives, up or down, whether it's smooth sailing or in the storms of life, You're worthy to be praised. And we thank You, God, for modern technology and the ability that we have even in a time where we can't be together that the Word can still go forth and our church can still receive Your Word and Your teaching from their pastor. And to worship and to praise under the leadership of Pastor Joe. So grateful that we can do all of that, Lord. So I ask Your blessing. I ask a very special blessing as families are gathered, perhaps children are present when they might not normally be. I pray that uh, they can be, um, that they can focus and that this could be a very special and a very blessed time and a message for them as they get to uh, spend time with their parents in this setting and under the Word in a way that they don't normally get to. And I pray for the parents. I pray for everyone. I pray for all the, all the adults, all of our, our congregation at home or wherever they may be viewing, that this would be a very special and a blessed time for them, that they would be greatly encouraged by the teaching of Your Word, that the distraction would be minimal, that they would be few, and that they uh, would really receive of Your Spirit and of Your Word, of Your truth. And I, I pray for our church in this time that, God, we would be stronger than ever, I pray that Your Spirit would continue to keep us connected and thriving and um, seeking Your face and that when all this passes, we'll come back together again and be stronger than ever, Father. So I, I pray for Your blessing and I ask for the help of Your Spirit in this time. And I pray for Your blessing upon this message today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the Gospel of John, let me just look at it from a bird's eye view real quick. The Gospel of John, as we know, it was written by the Apostle John. He was one of the youngest of the disciples. We believe that he may have been uh, in his late teens when uh, the twelve were walking with Jesus during that three-year period of time. We know that the Gospel itself, John's Gospel, is very unique. The other three Gospels are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels. They're very similar. They, they cover much of the same content. But the Gospel of John was written much later, much later, and it covers almost 93% new information that was not covered in the other Gospels. So it's very unique in that way. And it emphasizes the deity of Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. And that comes out very strongly in this Gospel. And the purpose statement of the Gospel is actually given to us in chapter 20, verse 31. And I love it when the writers do this. They make it very clear for us. He says, chapter 20, verse 31, "...but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name." So there's the purpose. 
so that we would know about Jesus, so that we would understand that He's the Son of God, that we would believe in His name, and that believing we would have life. So it's very much an evangelistic book. Well, the first 12 chapters deal with Jesus' public ministry, and they conclude with His ultimate rejection. So for 12 chapters, Jesus is ministering to the public. He's out doing miracles. He's healing folks. He's preaching and teaching. And ultimately, that concludes in chapter 12 with His rejection. And I'll read that to you. John chapter 12, verse 37 says this, But although He had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in Him. And then verse 42 says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so the majority of folks rejected Jesus outright. They did not believe in Him. But even for those who did believe in Him, they would not confess Him because they feared the Pharisees and they loved the praise and the honor of men more than that of God. What an awful and tragic testimony. And so that concludes Jesus' public ministry. Now He turns His attention solely to His disciples in John chapter 13 that which is often referred to as the upper room discourse. It is the night before Jesus is to be crucified, and He is enjoying this uh, Passover meal with His disciples, what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. This is where we are at currently in the text. And this is Him setting His attention solely on His disciples before He goes to the cross. And so this is the longest single teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. I think it's four or five chapters here. And it is a very intimate time. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross the next day. This very night, He is going to be betrayed and arrested. And so this is a very special time that He spends with His disciples. And I think it's important for us to recognize the weight of what Jesus has to share with them considering the fact that this is it. This is the end of their three years of being together and walking together on the earth. And Jesus has a very special time and a very special message for them. So with that, let's pick up in verse 1 of John chapter 13. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So here we have it. Jesus is at the Passover meal with His disciples in the upper room. We know that there's a lot of symbolism here. We know that this whole thing started back in Exodus when God delivered His people out of the Egyptian bondage. And then He set those plagues out upon the Egyptians there. And there was this particular plague where the firstborn of every household would die except someone were to take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost of the house, the angel, the death angel would pass over that house and the firstborn of that home, that child would be spared. And so we see this as a picture of Christ. Christ would come as the holy and spotless lamb who would die for the sins of the world. His blood would be shed. He would be that ultimate sacrifice for the sins of his people. And Jesus is getting ready to fulfill that literally on the day at the feast of Passover. So this is a very special and a very significant Passover. And Jesus says as much in Luke 22:15, he says with a fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And we know this is where Jesus institutes the last supper where he says that this bread is my body broken for you, this cup is is my blood poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant. And so this is all very picturesque, very symbolic of what Jesus was getting ready to do in a very real and a very uh, tangible way. We'll notice that it says His hour had come. His hour had come that He should depart from this world. His hour had come. That phrase we see it throughout the Gospel so many times. Jesus will often say, My hour has not yet come. My hour is not here. Well, here the hour has come. The very reason that Jesus came to the earth is upon Him. In John chapter 12, verse 27, He says this, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. So Jesus came to die. His hour was to come and to suffer, to suffer at the hands of sinners, to suffer the wrath of God that would be poured out on Him there at the cross. That was Jesus' hour. That is the very thing that He came for, and it is upon Him. His time has come. And so it says, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the very end. Jesus' time had come. His hour was here. And having loved His own, He loved them to the very end. You know, Jesus has a very special love for His own, for His people. God loves the world. God sent His Son to die for the world. But God has a very special love for His people. Jesus has a very special love for His sheep, for His church. And so here in these last few hours, Jesus turns His attention and He loves them to the very end. That's a very special phrase here. It's a, it's a, a, uh, he loves them perfectly. It's a very complete love. He did not stop short. He loved them to the very end. He went all the way to the cross. He did not stop short. It was a perfect love all the way to the very end. A very complete love. And that is the love that Jesus has for His own. That is the love that Jesus has for me. That is the love that Jesus has for you. It's an unfailing love. It's a never-ending love. It's a love that will never leave, never forsake you. It is a very complete and perfect love. And I praise God for that love. There's no greater love than that love. And I, I trust and I hope and I pray that you have experienced that love, that you're a recipient of that love. Well, it says this in verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself, after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So we're told here that the devil had already put it in uh, Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And we know in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, we see that play out. Judas went to the Pharisees. He sought an opportunity to betray Christ to them. Uh, for 30 pieces of silver. That was the, the deal that they, they struck there. And so the devil has already put it on Judas's heart to do this. He's already moved in him to do this. We're told here Jesus knew that his time had come and that he was going back to the Father. When you consider that, you don't really expect what happens next. In light of that, you don't really expect that Jesus is now going to turn and wash his disciples' feet. But Jesus has one evening left with His disciples before His crucifixion. And He is going to give them a lesson that they will never forget. This is a very shocking and multifaceted lesson here in the washing of the disciples' feet. So just set the scene. It was common for guests when they came into someone's home to have their feet washed. It was a very common courtesy to be offered in that culture. And it was often the task of the lowest slave or servant of the household. But you know what? The disciples were not about to do that for each other because neither, none of them saw themselves as the lowest. In fact, they were always arguing over who was the greatest. And we know that in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, that during this time, that's exactly what they were doing. They were at the table disputing amongst themselves who should be considered the greatest. None of them saw themselves as the lowest, clearly. And so Jesus is going to take opportunity and He's going to demonstrate for them what true greatness is. So verse 6. Um, excuse me. Uh, so as I said, he, I got ahead of myself there. He uh, took the basin. He wrapped Himself in a towel. He began to wash their feet. And He went around and washed all their feet. And He's going to explain the significance of this. He's going to explain the significance. And there's really two lessons here to be learned. And uh, Jesus is going to break them both down for us. Uh, both, I should say, are both very spiritual lessons to be sure. 
um, but one has you know a, a very clear spiritual message behind it, a meaning, and the other I think has a little bit more of a practical application to it. But the first one is this. Now he's begun to wash the disciples' feet, and then verse six says this. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord. Are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. So Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So we know that he comes now all the way to Peter and it's, it's been said that, that most likely Peter is at the very end here and we know that again in all likelihood they are at what is called a triclinium table. And so it's essentially like a U-shaped table that sits low to the ground and the servant could step inside that U essentially and make his way around the whole table and serve everybody so everyone's sitting around the outside of the table and they're basically laying on the ground and they're propped up on their left arm like this. And they line all the way around the table laying low to the ground on cushions propped up on the table. So when the Bible refers to people reclining at the table, that's literally what it means. That's what that would have looked like. And so it appears that Jesus has made his way all the way around the table. He came to Peter last. And Peter is totally lost. He is lost and he responds in typical Peter fashion. First, there's this righteous outrage. No way, Jesus, are you ever going to wash my feet. And then this panicked, overly dramatic reversal. And that's not surprising at all. We see that, that type of thing with Peter so often. I think that's one of the things we love about Peter. But Jesus is going to go on to explain the spiritual significance of what's happening here. There's a lot more going on here than Peter realizes, really than any of the disciples realize. And so Jesus is going to explain this first lesson here in verse 10. So Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So what this is, is a spiritual illustration for regular confession and repentance. Essentially, uh, we have to keep a short account with God, it's, it's been said. We want to be regularly confessing to the Lord when we fall short. And uh, we're clean, we are saved, we're forgiven to be sure, but so often we, we fall into sin. I mean, honestly, it's a daily thing, I think, for most of us, if not all of us, and we know this, so this is a spiritual lesson about going to God regularly for cleansing, as it were, to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, and to be washed anew. And we know this is a spiritual metaphor because of his reference to Judas, because he says, look, you're all clean, but not all of you are clean because of the one who would betray him. So we know he's not literally talking about dirt here, he's talking about something altogether different. And so he tells Peter, you're completely clean but you need to be washed. You're, you need your feet to be washed. And so this had a very uh, practical, everyday significance. Public bathing houses were very common. People would go, they would, they would uh, take a bath, they would be clean, but then you immediately, upon leaving that place and walking through the streets, your feet would get dirty right away. And so that necessitated regular feet washings, and I, I don't need to get into all the details about just how dirty the streets would have been and, and all of that kind of stuff. I could say that for another time, but suffice it to say their feet would get pretty nasty. And so uh, it would be awkward to go into someone's home and to dine at their table and not have your feet washed. Well, so that, that's what is, Jesus is essentially using. That's a practical way, um, an everyday real life example of something that Jesus is making into a spiritual application here. So there's a a full cleansing that happens when you believe on Jesus. You're saved, you're forgiven, nothing will change that, nothing can take that away. But we do get defiled in this world. We have this flesh, we have this enemy, Satan, we have this corrupt world system that we are living in, and we can be defiled, we can give in to sin, and we need to be washed regularly. We need to confess our sins to Jesus, we need to ask His forgiveness 
Because what we don't want is hindered fellowship with the Lord. And that's what it amounts to. Satan cannot snatch you out of God's hand, but he would love to uh, render you ineffective. He would love to do something to hinder your relationship with God. And so that's essentially what sin does for the believer. It causes us to have a tainted, uh, hindered relationship with God. It's not good for our testimony. It affects our service to the Lord. And so we want to be those who are regularly having our feet washed, as it were. Those who are going to the Lord in prayer, who are being washed by the water of the Word. We're being reminded of the truth of God's love for us and our need to walk in holiness and to walk in the light and to confess our sins because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's lesson number one. And again, I must remind you that um, this is... This is it. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. So I'm sure that He was very deliberate, that He was very strategic about the lessons that He was going to be teaching them here. So understand the significance of this. This is very important to the heart of the Lord. We are people who are to stay close to God and who want to be clean. We want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we want to be regularly washed before Him. Verse 12. Now he's going to kind of go a different direction with it. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. So this question, Do you know what I have done to you? I think this this could be two different things he's essentially saying. One, he may be saying, Do you get the lesson? Are you kind of picking up where I'm going with this? Or he could say, do you have any clue of the magnitude of what just happened here? That's what he's getting ready to unpack. That the Lord of heaven and earth, that their master would stoop down and wash their feet. That is huge. So Jesus says, do you know what I have done to you? And then he says, you call me teacher, you call me master, you call me Lord, and you do well. You are right in saying that. They, they were correct. He is Lord. He is king. He is master. He is teacher. And they're absolutely right to recognize that. So far, so good. So far, so good. He says, then, verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you that a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here's the thing. They would gladly serve Jesus. These disciples here, I think that uh, they would not hesitate for a moment to serve the Lord and to, to wash His feet, but not for a second would they wash each other's feet. As I said, what we know about them is there's this constant bickering over who's going to be great, who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man in the kingdom, so on and so forth. They were always abiding for that position. But Jesus says, look, a servant is not greater than his master. A servant is not greater than his master. If the master is willing to stoop, if Jesus was willing to stoop to such a level and to wash their feet, they must be willing to do the same. They must be willing to serve each other. they got to get over this complex of who's greater and who deserves my service and who deserves to be blessed and who doesn't. Jesus says you have to be willing to serve one another. If I have stooped to this level, if I, your master and teacher, have washed your feet, how much more should you be willing to serve one another? And then he says this, you've been given an example. You've been given an example. And so we have to do these things. He says you have to do these things. It's one thing to know these things, but the blessing is in the doing. He said, blessed are you if you do these things. So brothers and sisters, it's, enough, it's not enough to just know these things. I mean, it makes sense. This is very easy to understand. It's not complicated. But we have to be doing these things. We have to be serving other people, blessing other people, loving other people, and not picking and choosing 
uh, who that is based on whether they think that they we think that they are worthy of it or deserving of it. We are called to serve and to love the least of these. Now I'll admit this is a very challenging time to do that. There are practical ways in which we can try to help people, but at the same time, there's the question of well, should we really do that because we're supposed to be distancing ourselves from each other and for good reason. I think that it's wise and I think that it's loving in this season of life to honor what the government is asking of us and to separate for a time. I don't think there's anything malicious about this. I don't think that, um, that we're having weak faith. Anything of the sort. I think that it's the loving and the wise thing to do to honor what has been requested of us and to distance ourselves for a time. But having said that, it certainly makes it difficult to, to serve and bless people practically in a time like this. But I tell you what, you can still encourage people uh, verbally. You can pray for people. You can serve people through prayer. You can call people, email people. You can get online, like I said, in these group settings, and we can encourage one another. That's one way in which we can absolutely serve people in this season. But, you know, when this passes, again, there's just so many practical ways. I don't encourage people to wash people's feet. I don't think that's really the point here. Um, that may have been a very real and practical need in that day, in that time, but it's not so much anymore. But there are, are many other ways in which you can essentially do the same thing in the culture that we live in. But the bottom line is, it's, it's a heart. It's the heart of the matter. Do you see yourself as a servant to the Lord and a servant of others? Do you see yourself as one who recognizes how you have been served by the Master? Have you considered how Jesus has served you? I mean, because here's the reality. As shocking as this may have been for the disciples, it pales in comparison to what Christ did in the Incarnation. When Jesus, the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, who never knew anything but perfect unity and glory with the Father and the Spirit, condescended. He came to the earth. He took upon Himself flesh. He submitted Himself to earthly parents. He lived a difficult life here of perfect obedience and He served us to the death by giving Himself upon the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He suffered under the agony of that crucifixion and the mocking and the ridicule and the rejection and the abandonment and the betrayal and ultimately the wrath of God being poured out on Him. He served us like that. Now if we recognize that we have been served like that, Tell me, in what way could you possibly not serve someone else? What reason could you possibly give to not serve people around you when you recognize what Christ has done for you, for me, for us? So brothers, sisters, we above all people are called to be servants. And so that's a very real lesson that Jesus is bringing out here in this point, at this time. And so with that, we're going to move on into the text here and we're going to see that <clears throat> Jesus is going to demonstrate for us that He's very much in control of what's happening here. He's not a victim to circumstance. He actually knows all of these things intimately. He knows what's happening, what's going to happen, and He's actually in control of it all. So verse 18, <clears throat> excuse me, He says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen but that the Scripture may be fulfilled, He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So Judas was not going to be counted among the blessed here that Jesus just referred to. He says, I don't speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted his heel up against me. Now, this is a reference. This is quoting from Psalm 41.9. And David was actually talking about his closest advisor, Ahithophel. We know that when David committed that uh, heinous um, sin there with Bathsheba and then ultimately had Bathsheba's husband killed that um, 
David's closest advisor was Bathsheba's grandfather, if I'm not mistaken. His name was Ahithophel. And so when David's sin was exposed by Nathan, no doubt Ahithophel was right there in the court. And uh, he thought David had been so benevolent and generous in caring for his widowed granddaughter Bathsheba, but now he finds out what's really happened and that this is all actually David's fault. And so he sought out an opportunity, and when it came, he betrayed David. When David's son Abner rose up and tried to overthrow him and take the throne, Ahithophel sought to align himself with Abner in, in doing that. And it, it all failed, it came to naught, and Ahithophel actually hung himself shortly thereafter. Well, Jesus references that as speaking of, as a messianic prophecy of, the betrayal of Judas. And interestingly enough, we know from Acts that Judas did go out and hang himself after all this was said and done. So that's the reference there. And the idea is, is he who was closest to me has raised his heel against me. It's kind of like, in my mind, the picture is you're, you're hanging off this precipice. You're hanging from this ledge and you're doing everything in your power to pull yourself up and get back up on solid footing and someone comes up to you and they see you and they just kick you off the ledge. Essentially, that's what he's saying here. And so Jesus says that about Judas. He says, but I'm telling you this before it happens. I'm telling you this before it happens so that when it does, you'll remember that I told you and you'll know that I am He. I am He. That's very significant. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am the one that God had promised to come, and I'm in control of all these things. I know all of these things. And he says, Therefore, whoever receives you, the messenger of Christ, whoever receives the gospel, the message of Christ, receives Christ. And because Christ is, he is, Jesus is he, he is the one, he is the foretold one, the Messiah, whoever receives him, receives God, receives the Father. Well, now Jesus is going to set this whole thing in motion. His betrayal, the arrest, it's, it's, it all kind of begins to go down right here. The clock begins to tick. Verse 21, When Jesus had said these things, He was troubled in His spirit, and He testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. And the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom He spoke. So Jesus was troubled. This is deep anxiety and agitation. We see this word used a few times. It was used in chapter 12. It will be used again in chapter 14. But Jesus became deeply troubled and said, One of you is going to betray me. Now the disciples looked at one another and they were perplexed. Well, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 22, it tells us that they actually one by one went around the table and asked, Lord, is it me? Is it I? And honestly, guys, I think that is the appropriate response because none of us are above that. In this moment, the disciples hit it right on the head. They said, Lord, is it me? Please say it's not me. And I think that there's something to be said about a healthy uh, self-distrust. I heard that from Pastor Bill, I think, a couple of times, and I've always liked that. We need to recognize that our propensities are towards sin, that we tend towards uh, wandering away from God. We're prone to it, in fact. And so we never need to think that we're so great that we could not succumb to something even as, as awful or disturbing or troubling as this. <clears throat> I think we would do uh, ourselves a lot of good and save ourselves from a lot of trouble if we would walk as though we were walking in a minefield, I think, a little bit more so. Um, caution, being careful in life, recognizing that we're not as strong as maybe we think we are. Um, Ephesians actually talks about this. It says, walking circumspectly. To walk circumspectly. And the, the word there is acrobos. It's the word that we get acrobatics from. And it's like walking on a tightrope. Tight that is in some way the way that we are to carry ourselves. Not constantly fearful, not anxious, not things like that, but just uh, uh, a real watch on ourselves. Staying real close to the Lord not, uh, not thinking that we are above falling or sinning, succumbing to weakness. Uh, I think in this moment you see a, a real humility with the disciples, and I, I appreciate that. I think we would do well to have a little bit of that. Well, verse 23, Jesus is going to identify His betrayer. 
Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom, whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And so Jesus answered, It is he of whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So again, I just want to remind you of this whole triclinium setup. I mentioned that Peter was probably at the very end, the upper part of the U, if you will. And so you go all the way back around to the other end, and it would appear that the uh, apostle or the disciple John, Jesus, and then Judas are right there in that place. So on the very outer end of it would be kind of like the, uh, the, the friend of the, the host. So that is, and this disciple whom Jesus loved, we believe that to be a very clear reference to the Apostle John. He wrote this book, and he references himself that way a few times, but he never actually mentions himself by name. He calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. He was the youngest of the disciples. It seemed like that they had a bond that the rest of the disciples and Jesus did not have. And so um, he referred to himself that way. <clears throat> and uh, he's leaning against Jesus, which would make sense. So if he is on the outside here, he's leaning in. Jesus is right behind him. He's kind of um, bumped up against Jesus' shoulder there, if you will. And so it would make sense if Peter is right across on the other side of that table that he would signal to John and say, hey, you know, who's he talking about? Who is it? So then John kind of leans back and talks to Jesus and said, who is it? And Jesus said, it's the one to whom I uh, passed the bread. So then if Jesus is sitting there and he dips the bread and Judas is right here, he passes it over to the next guy. That would be where Judas would be, which uh, interestingly enough is the guest of honor spot. And so that's where Judas is, is seated. You know, I always thought this was so strange. I always, you know, thought that um, the disciples would just jump up and dogpile Judas in that moment when it had been revealed to them that uh, that he was the one. But either they didn't hear this, or they just still were not getting it. They were just absolutely lost at what Jesus was talking about here, and they were so perplexed and confused that they just didn't get it. But at any rate, Jesus has pinpointed that Judas is going to betray him. He identified him. He gave him the bread. That was the sign that he had set up with John. And then this, verse 27. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. And so, um, the disciples didn't get it. Jesus actually carried the money. He, he was the treasurer, I suppose you could say, for the disciples. And uh, they thought Jesus was sending him out to run some kind of an errand, to run some sort of task, maybe to give... A, um, something to be generous to someone or to um, bring back something that was needed for, for the, the Passover there. They just didn't get it. We're told here that Satan entered Judas and Judas went out. That's really scary um, to think that Satan had already moved in the heart of Judas, but then now he has actually entered Judas and Judas went out as a result. And so... You know, we there are some differing views on this within Christianity. Generally speaking, we don't believe that um, Christians can be filled with Satan or, or demon possessed. Um, <clears throat> what I would say is that this, what this tells me very clearly, is that Judas was not a follower of Jesus. He just was not, and he was he was totally open, totally vulnerable, and Satan saw a foothold here, and he got in it, and he took advantage of it, and he. <clears throat> excuse me, entered into Judas and through Judas went out and did this bidding. And so this is also scary to me because the disciples had no clue about Judas. Uh, we can really fool others. We can fool other people into thinking that we're somebody who we're really not. 
And so we can deceive ourselves and we can deceive other people. And that's a scary thing. We can be fooled. We can be fooled that uh, other people are someone who they're not really. They're pretending to be something that they're not. And as I said, we can fool ourselves. So I think this is a great picture of the fact we have to be so careful in recognizing that we're right before God, that we are who we say we are. And Paul says that. He says that we... We are to examine ourselves to see whether we're really in the faith. You need to know that you know, and you can know. You can have assurance that you are a true believer, but you need to have that assurance. And uh, so I, I see this about Judas, and I think, man, that's a scary thing. That's a scary reality. And even more so is that he had been in such close proximity to the Lord. You know, I see this a lot as a pastor. I see people that are so close Week after week after week, they show up to church. They sit under the teaching. They're moved by it. They have questions. uh, But they just don't come. They don't surrender. They don't submit to the Lord. And they just continue to put it off and put it off. They got so close. And then they fall away. And then you don't see them anymore. And so that is such a tragedy. And I want to, for anybody who's watching this right now, if that is you, if you have been coming and hearing the teaching and you know God is reaching out to you and He's drawing you towards Himself, take a lesson here from Judas. Don't let that be you. Give yourself to the Lord. Don't, don't fight it. Don't keep waiting. Submit yourself to Him. Give yourself to the Lord. Trust yourself to Jesus. Confess Him as Lord. Turn your life over to Him. Ask forgiveness for your sin and surrender to the Lord. Verse 31, Judas has now gone out. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. So it's like Jesus is saying, okay, it's official. It's on now. Now the Son of Man is glorified. It's in motion. Judas is going out. He's going to go get uh, the arresting officers and bring them back. And there's good reason to think that they actually came back to this house first. I won't get into that today, but I have my reason for believing. We know that they finally catch up to Jesus in the garden and they apprehend Him there, but I think there's scriptural reason to believe that they actually came back here first. So this, it's really in motion now. Judas has gone out. Now it is truly just a matter of time. And he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And so to be sure, Jesus' humiliation, Jesus' humiliation is imminent. It's coming. But that will lead to His exaltation. That will lead to His ultimate glorification as the the Savior, the Son of God who came and gave His life for the sins of the world. Well, verse 33 Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Jesus had already said this to the Jews earlier on, I think in chapter 7 and chapter 8. He tells them that He's going and they cannot follow, and they were very confused by this. And they came up with their their reasons of of what He meant and and why he, He said that. But now He's telling His disciples, He's telling His disciples, I'm going and where I'm going, you cannot come. Though this is only temporary for them. Well, Jesus says this next. He gives them a new command. Verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are My disciples if you have love one for another. So a new commandment now Jesus is giving to His disciples here in this, in this time, in this place. And I'd like to read a quote to you from MacArthur. He says this, The commandment to love was not new. Deuteronomy 6.5 commanded love for God and Leviticus 19.18 commanded loving one's neighbor as oneself. However, Jesus' command regarding love presented a distinctly new standard for two reasons. One, it was sacrificial love modeled after His own love. And two, it is produced through the new covenant by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. 
So this is a new kind of love. It's a new kind of love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a Christ-empowered love. As you see the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated in that He died even for His enemies, that He gave His life freely, sacrificially, unconditionally, that is an amazing love. That is a supernatural love. That is a love that is far beyond our ability to imitate or walk in. This is a new covenant, uh, spirit-empowered love. This love comes through receiving of the love of God and being filled with His Holy Spirit and then being empowered to love others the same way. And this is the kind of love that we're told we're to love each other with. So he says, you are to love one another. And there's that phrase again, church. I've been mentioning this week after week in Romans, but I told you that there are the one another commandments in the New Testament. And that word is used 47 times, I believe it was, regarding Christians' conduct towards each other. And so here Jesus has said, you are to love one another as I have loved you. And so we are to be busy loving each other, church. And the standard and the motivation is there. The love of Jesus and that we have received and been loved by Jesus, therefore we're to love others the same way. And then he says this, by this all are going to know that you're my disciples. That's so cool that Pastor Joe <clears throat> referenced that in worship earlier. Um, and, I, and I love this verse. They're going to know that you're a Christian. They're going to know that you're a disciple of Jesus by your love. By your love. There are a lot of ways in which I think people set out to demonstrate that they are a Christian or to, to try to advance the cause of Christ. But number one has to be love. People can try to serve and um, evangelize in a very obnoxious way, in a way that is uh, very not Christ-like. And so Jesus said, look, if you really want to display My glory, if you really want to reflect who I am, then it's going to happen by love. If people are going to truly know that you belong to me, it's going to come through love, the supernatural, sacrificial, spirit-empowered love. So I would be encouraging you. Let, let, let that be the prayer for all of us. Lord, help me to recognize that love that you have loved me with. Help me to be absolutely gripped by that. And help me, Lord, to love other people like that. And then I would say, try to be intentional about it. Seriously, sit down and think. I was just thinking over the last week or two, there's been very real ways, tangible ways, in which people have loved me. And I'm always so blessed by that. I'm so encouraged to know that I am loved. And that I have a family of believers that love Jesus and serve Him and love me in turn. And so it helps me, honestly, to see how I can in turn love other people. It's happening all around me. I'm seeing it happen. So then I want to be very deliberate. God, who is somebody that this week I can do an act of kindness towards? Whatever that might, might look like. But it has to be intentional. It has to be intentional. So we've been commanded. We're not greater than our Master. We're not greater than our Teacher. He has given us an example to follow. And He has given us a command. And so we are to love other people. It's not optional. And on top of that, when we do that, it reflects the glory and the love of Christ and the world will know that we are His because of that love. It's so awesome. So awesome. And so uh, may, that, may that be the case for us. Well, Peter just missed all of that, it would appear. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Uh, it seems as though all of what Jesus just said totally missed Peter, the whole thing about the love. He's still stuck back there on, I'm going and you can't follow. And so Peter could not follow Jesus where he was going. Jesus is going to the cross. God has a job for Peter, and it's not his time. But then Jesus says, you will follow me afterward. This could simply mean that I'm going to, to heaven, as he'll talk about in John chapter 14, to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you and you're going to come and be where I am. It could be that or this could be a veiled reference to Peter's death even because we do believe that Peter was crucified. Maybe it was like 30 years later even from this point. But in chapter 21, John seems to give a very explicit prophecy about how Peter was going to die. And I see some similarities there. So for what it's worth, just a little side note. 
Well, verse 37, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And that's the end of John chapter 13. And uh, I don't mean to leave it in a, uh, a dark place like that. Immediately as we get into John chapter 14, it's going to, uh, to turn. Um, and Jesus is going to begin to offer hope and encouragement. But before we get that, I've got a few more minutes here before we, we finish up this portion. And let me, let me try to just shine some positive light on this um, before we end this message. So... First, what we see here is that Peter was very sure of himself. He was very sure of himself, and this was ultimately his downfall. He, uh, he said, Lord, why can't I come with you right now? I'll go with you even to the death. I will lay down my life for you. And in Matthew chapter 26, Peter even demanded that if everyone else fell away, he alone would stand. He alone would be faithful. Now this is a very different, uh, very this is very different than earlier when the disciples were kind of asking, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Am I the one? Here, Peter saying, Look, I will go all the way to the death uh, with you, Jesus. Everyone else might fall away, but I will not. <clears throat> but you know what? Jesus knew better than that. Jesus questioned that. He essentially told him that Peter, before this night is over, before the morning comes, you're going to deny me three times. When he says before the rooster crows, that's the idea. Before, before morning comes. And it's amazing to me to think they're here at this dinner table. Peter is adamantly uh, just stating that he will go to the death for Jesus in just a few hours. He's going to be denying him. And Peter has no clue. But God knows. And I just wonder how many times, I don't know about you, but I think about myself, God, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Lord, I promise. And God's just thinking, no, you're not. No, you're not. God knows. Um, and I don't know, I find some comfort in that. God knows. God knows our weakness. God knows our, our uh, capabilities. He knows what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. He's not surprised by any of that. But here's just some closing thoughts about this. You know, Jesus came to save His own people and He was re- rejected. He came to His own and His own received Him not. John chapter 1. He's spending his last hours with those that are closest to him. And what do you have? You have him arguing over who's going to be the greatest. You have one who's in the process of betraying him. He's getting ready to go out and to betray Jesus. You have the whole group is getting ready to go out and just scatter. They're going to all together abandon Jesus. And then Peter is outright going to deny him. Yet he loved them to the very end. He loved them anyway. He's getting ready to go to the cross and here he is at the table washing their feet, even Judas, and he's spending these last hours loving them, teaching them, trying to shepherd them, telling them about what's getting ready to happen. Frankly, this is a picture of us. This is a picture of us. I know that oftentimes we like to make ourselves the heroes of the Bible stories. I know that we like to look at the disciples and think that we're above that. I think we especially look at the Old Testament Israelites and think how could they do those kinds of things. But honestly, that's us, folks. That's us. That's every bit of us. We are the disciples. And ultimately, it was for our sins that Jesus even went to the cross. And so we're absolutely complicit in all of this. Uh, just as guilty as they were, so are we. It was our sins that, that nailed Jesus there, that, that held Him there, I should say. And so... Um, you know, I, th- I think about that. One, this ought to humble us. It ought to humble us to recognize we're just like them. Yet Jesus loved them to the very end. He washed their feet. He taught them. And Jesus loves us too in our failures. Jesus loves us too in our weaknesses. Jesus loves us too in our shortcomings. This ought to give us some perspective on Jesus' love. This ought to give us some clear perspective on just how amazing Jesus' love is for us, even in our weakness. This ought to give us some perspective on how we are to love other people. We're to love other people despite whether we think they're worthy of it or not. 
whether we think they're deserving of it or not. Because the disciples did not deserve Jesus' love and neither do we. We are all very much in the same boat. But such is the love of God. Such is the love of Christ. That even in the face of all of that, that ragtag group of disciples uh, that you could describe in all of those ways, Jesus loved them. And He loved them to the very end. He loved them to the cross and beyond. So let me close with this verse. John chapter 15, verses 11 through 13. It says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life, lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus laid his life down for us. There's no greater love than this. And these things have been told us for our joy, that, that, that joy may be full and remain in us, and that is the commandment that we love one another as Jesus has loved us, and there's been no greater love in the history of the earth than the love that Jesus displayed at the cross when He laid down His life for us. That's the Gospel message, folks. Jesus died for humble sinners. Jesus died for the wicked. Jesus died for God-hating rebels so that if they believed upon Jesus Christ, if they believe that He is the sinless, spotless Lamb, the Son of God who gave His life for the sins of the world, if they put their trust in Him, believe on Him for salvation, they would be saved. We would be forgiven. We would be cleansed. All of that sin, all of that guilt, all of that is gone. And we are forgiven. And then God makes us new. We're new creations. We're no longer that person. We're no longer that person that we used to be. We're altogether new and God is day by day making us new. And now God is our loving Heavenly Father. We're no longer at enmity with Him. He's no longer a judge to whom we must give an account. He's a loving Heavenly Father with open arms who says, come to Me, I love you. And we have the hope of heaven that one day we will be with Him in glory and paradise and we will see Him as He is, and we will be like Him when we see Him. We will stand in glory. We will be glorified too. And all of that is bound up in the Gospel message. And that is the love that was poured out for us. That is the love that was demonstrated. That's the love that's extended to us. I hope and I pray and I trust that you know that love. Let me pray. Praise you, God. Bless your holy name. We worship you. And we thank You for this amazing love. No greater love than this, that You would lay down Your life for us. And so we, we thank You, God, for the Gospel. We thank You, Jesus, that You laid down Your life for us. Now may we lay down our lives one for another. May we serve each other as You have served us, Jesus. I pray that You would help us, God, to walk in these realities and to understand more clearly how we can do that each and every one of us in our own lives. Thank You for Your love, Jesus. How glorious is that? Even in such a dark place as this chapter ends, and we know the encouragement that will come in chapter 14, thank You for how brightly Your love shines against the darkness of our own weakness and our own inability and our own sin. Praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.